Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Tony Ria. Well, once again, good morning. Welcome to Community Christian Church. <clears throat> so good to have you with us. Are you glad you made it this morning? I believe you are. And for some of you who might not be sure, you're glad you're here. We're glad you made it. And I'm really anticipating uh, that the remainder of our service today is going to be a blessing to you, just like the first part of it was during the praise and worship time. Just always great to come together and be in his presence and experience his uh, a beautiful presence among us. As Sean mentioned just a few moments ago, today we're going to begin a brand new series entitled Come and See. And for this particular series, as creative as we can be from time to time with our sermon titles, we can't take any credit for this one because it comes right from the scripture. Here it is in John chapter 1, beginning with verse 35. The following day, John, that would be John the Baptist, was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him. He looked at Jesus and declared, there is the Lamb of God. The who? The Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Jesus looked around and saw them following, and he asked them, what do you want? They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, Jesus said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Now Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these two men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother, that would be Peter, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. All right, that's good right there. Let's take a moment and talk about what we just read. One day, John the Baptist was hanging out with two of his disciples, and as he was talking with them, probably teaching them, Jesus passed by. And when John saw Jesus, he repeated the same exact words that he said at Jesus' baptism. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. And keep in mind that all during the time that John the Baptist was ministering, all during the time that he was teaching his followers and the group of people that were with him, he was pointing people to Jesus. He did that since day one because that was his prophetic assignment. Remember, he was called to be the forerunner to the Messiah, to talk about Jesus and to point people to Jesus. In fact, on one occasion, he said uh, in reference to Jesus, I baptize with water, but there's one that's coming after me. He's more powerful than I. He's mightier and greater than I. Uh, he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And furthermore, John said, he must increase and I must decrease. 
And so this was the message that John the Baptist had taught to his disciples all along. And these two disciples that were with him on that day, they took his words to heart. Now the scripture identifies one of the disciples, tells us his name is Andrew. This is Simon Peter's brother. The other disciple is not named. However, most commentators and Bible scholars speculate that it was John, the apostle John, the brother of James. And the reason they think that is because when writing the Gospel of John on at least nine different occasions, John refers to himself as the other disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. And so right here, these two disciples, let's say it's Andrew and John, they heard their wilderness rabbi point to Jesus and say, behold, the Lamb of God, or look, there's the Lamb of God. Immediately they turned to follow Jesus. They left following John, which is interesting in and of itself. Uh, it's what we should do when we come in contact with Jesus. Leave behind whoever we're following or listening to and immediately follow him. And they turned to him and they said, where are you staying? Andrew and John said to Jesus, where are you staying? And that word in the Greek, stay, means so much more than a home address or a hotel accommodation. Andrew and John were basically asking Jesus, where are you coming from? Where do you abide? Or more specifically, who are you? And in response, Jesus said, come and see. That's where this series title has come from and that's our main objective this whole month of October beginning today and for the next five weeks we are going to take an up close and personal look at Jesus and in the process review who he is and what he's all about Amen. I mean you know it's pretty good to, in church to talk about Jesus <laughs> uh, we try to do that all the time now, I dare say that if we were to take a church survey this morning and ask you a few candid questions about the life and ministry of Jesus, we might be surprised and maybe even shocked at some of the responses. And so this series is designed to give us a better understanding of who Jesus is and hopefully get us all on the same page. All right, I'd like to begin this morning, installment number one, with the reading of a very familiar healing story found in the Gospel of John, John chapter 5. John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. You will recognize this story. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five, colored, five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. How long? 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in that same condition, paralyzed for a long time, 38 years. He asked him, do you want to get well? 
Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred, and while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. And then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat, and he walked. It's a tremendous miracle here. And the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath day, the law forbids you to carry your mat. Think about that. You know, six other days during the week to get healed. Don't get healed on the Sabbath. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? And the man who was healed had no idea who it was. The man who was healed had no idea that it was Jesus. For Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. All right, that's good right there. Jesus was in Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And we're told in this story that on his way to the temple, he passed by the sheep gate. And that's the place where they kept all of the little lambs that were about to be sacrificed. And as Jesus saw all those sheep in the pen, and I'm thinking about this, I have to believe that he paused for just a moment. He knows it's the Passover. He knows there's a bunch of sheep that are about to be slaughtered because that's how their festival was celebrated. And in the back of his mind, he has to be thinking about the words that John spoke time and time again, behold, the Lamb of God. I mean, he was the Lamb of God, Jesus. And as he passes along from there and continues on his way to the temple, he comes to what was called the Pool of Bethesda. And there at the Pool of Bethesda, there was a countless number of sick and disabled people all placed around the perimeter of the pool. In fact, everywhere you could see, the deck was completely covered with crippled and diseased and lame and paralyzed people. And all of these people were hoping and praying that they would get better because as tradition went, they believed that the waters of the Pool of Bethesda had healing properties. Now we're told there at the pool there was a lame man. He was an invalid and had been in that same condition for 38 years. Think about that. For the better part of his life, we don't know how old he was, but for at least 38 years, his family members would take him to the pool of Bethesda, probably say a quick prayer over him, drop him off, lay him in some spot there near the entrance of the pool so that he could get into the waters. And he would remain in that exact same position all day long. He'd lay there, couldn't move, he was lame. He'd stay in that position. And Jesus is passing by. He glances at the pool of Bethesda. And his attention is drawn to that paralyzed man. 
again, numerous amount of people, all in pain, all sick, all hoping and praying that they're going to get healed. And Jesus is drawn to this one man. He walks over to him. He engages him in conversation. And he makes three statements. The first statement is in the form of a question. He asks the man, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? Then he said, get up. And then he said, stop sinning. Do you want to get well? Get up. Take up your mat and walk. And stop sinning. Or something worse may happen to you. And you know the drill. We're going to take a look at these one at a time. Again, at the place called the Pool of Bethesda, Jesus' attention is drawn to an invalid man, a crippled man, a man who'd been there for a long, long time. There's no indication in the writing of this story that Jesus had any other contact with this man. He doesn't know this man. He hasn't talked with him before. And he walked right up to him. Instead of saying hello, introducing himself, asking his name, commenting on the weather, the first words out of his mouth were, do you want to get well? All right, there's a bunch of people here. They're all hoping and praying that they're going to get better. And Jesus walks up to this man. The scripture says he learned he'd been there a long time. And he asked him the question, do you want to get well? Now, I'm convinced Jesus never asked a foolish question in his life. And I doubt very seriously that he wasted many words. But this seems like a very strange question to ask a paralyzed man. Do you want to get well? Or do you really want your situation to get better? And I know this may seem foreign to you, but the truth is, Many, many people don't want to change. They refuse to acknowledge and surrender their shortcomings and flaws to God. They do not care to put themselves in the stream of God's healing grace. They simply don't want to change. And please don't misunderstand me or misquote me. I'm not talking about making a mistake from time to time. I, I, I'm not referring to us missing the mark occasionally. That happens to all of us. The scripture is very clear in Romans 3.23. It says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all get tripped up from time to time. We all get caught up and fall victim to sin. That's not what I mean. What I'm talking about here is a lifestyle of dysfunction where we repeat the same behavior over and over again, year after year after year. Some people, they don't want to change that. They don't want to make the improvements to see their lives get better. Now, last month, we just finished a little three-part series in, in, where we talked about the amazing grace of God. We called it Grace Effect. And we communicated that there is grace residual available to us all of the time. 
In fact, in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, God said, it was God who said, my grace is sufficient for you. It's, it's enough for everything that you need of. Every need that you have, every problem that you have, my grace is enough. It's sufficient. And we talked about multiple levels of God's grace. There's saving grace and there's sanctifying grace and sustaining grace. And the sanctifying grace of God has the power to change and transform us. If, it's a big condition there, if we're willing to humble ourselves and become vulnerable, God's grace can change us. God's grace can make us better. And so if we're going to get healthier, if we're going to improve, if we're going to see change come to our lives, then we have to give God permission to allow the Holy Spirit to go to work in our hearts. That's a choice that we make. We have to want to get better. We have to want to change. Again, Jesus asked the lame man, do you want to get well? I marvel that that's the question he's going to ask this man. Do you want to get well? And it's implied, of course I do. That's why I'm here. Of course I want to be healed. But do you remember the invalid's response to Jesus? He said, yes, I, I do want to get healed, but it's not going to work for me. It's not going to happen. It's never going to happen. And the reason it's never going to happen is because something or someone always gets in the way and they prevent me from getting help. Furthermore, I don't have the resources necessary to make changes. I don't have any help coming my way. And that's when Jesus made a second statement and he said, get up. Gather your stuff together and start walking. Now, when I review this whole account carefully and I try to frame and picture everything that's happening in my mind, it just appears to me that the actions and behavior of Jesus are a little out of character. Typically, we're told that when Jesus performed a healing, right before the healing, the, 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 the scripture usually tells us that Jesus was moved with compassion. That means he literally felt the pain of the person that was suffering. And feeling that pain, he would gently lay his hands on the person or speak a soft, merciful word to the one that he's ministering to. But that doesn't happen here. Jesus doesn't convey a story. He doesn't mention an Old Testament Bible verse. He doesn't have any small talk. In fact, he appears to be a little bit more straightforward and direct than he normally is. And he tells him to get up. Get up. You know, sometimes that's precisely what we need to hear. Even when it's the last thing that we want to hear. When it may be the most difficult statement to receive. Sometimes we're feeling sorry for ourselves. I mean, look what's happened to me. Look how long this has been going on. How many times I've been coming here for help. How, how often I've spent time in prayer. Doing all the right things. All of the things that is expected of me and still nothing. We, we, I mean, you know, we can feel a little sorry for ourselves. 
And then sometimes we come up with a long list of excuses as to why we can't move forward and they all seem legitimate in our minds. And then occasionally, I know probably not for you, but some of us have a tendency to try to blame someone else or something for, for why we can't get any help. You see, sometimes we have to be willing to pull ourselves up and to put our trust in God more so than we ever have before. We have to get courageous and determined and trust that God is able. He's able to do something that is very difficult to believe and comprehend. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 says that God is able. Can I get you to repeat that? God is able. One more time. God is able. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or think. Exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ever ask or think. That means that whatever we think God is capable of doing, he has more power and more ability to go beyond that to get beyond our expectations and beyond our comprehension. And the Bible goes on to say that it's his mighty power that works in us. So this great power that God has, it's available to us. God works in us. And it's, the one, and it's God who provides the strength for us to take a step of faith and to believe. So again, Jesus encountered a lame man at the pool. He initiated a conversation with him. First words out of his mouth, first statement or question is, do you want to get well? Secondly, Jesus said to him, get, get up, take up your mat and walk. And when Jesus gave him that instruction, when he told him to do that, immediately the man got up and he walked. He was healed. He received this tremendous healing after all of that time. And then the scripture tells us that a short time after that, Jesus found him in, at the temple and he made the third statement to this man. Stop sinning. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. Now, this is just my humanity now. Forgive me. But what could be worse than what this man has been through the last 38 years? An invalid. Unable to work, unable to provide for himself, to care for anyone else, to just lay there, not be able to accomplish anything. You know, that would crush my spirit. That would really destroy me. Is there something worse than that? Well, I'm going to address that in just a moment, but first I want to mention to you that when Jesus said, stop sinning or something worse might happen, that Bible scholars, when they, when they read that statement, when they hear what Jesus said, uh, they conclude that this man was lame, he was paralyzed because of something he did. Because he sinned, that brought about his crippled condition. And this was a common belief in those days. But I don't see it that way. Remember with me on another occasion in John chapter 9 when the disciples of Jesus saw a man who had been born blind. They asked Jesus, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you remember how Jesus responded? He said, neither. 
Neither, neither one of them sinned. And it's kind of comical to me because in order for the man himself to have sinned, he would have had to have sinned before he was born because he was born blind. But Jesus made it very clear. He said the blindness is not because of sin. And in like manner, I can't believe that this man's crippled condition was because of something he did, because of sin. I'm convinced that the God we serve does not punish us with sickness and disease. That does not sound like the covenant-keeping God that we have. In fact, in Psalm 103, we're told that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. He doesn't repay us according to our own iniquities. Jesus went to the cross. He died there for the sins of the world. He became the final sacrifice once and for all. And the scripture says the punishment that we, des that we deserved was placed upon him and by his wounds were healed. Here. I cannot, I will not believe that this man did something terrible enough to receive a four decade long sentence from God to be crippled. I do, however, believe what Jesus said that there is something worse than being crippled or being an invalid or having a physical handicap. And that is spiritual separation from God. Being separated from the blessing of an intimate fellowship and intimate relationship with him. In other words, spiritually speaking, being on the outside looking in. And my dear friends, that's what sin does. It separates us. Sin fills us with guilt and condemnation. It's not so much the punishment for sin, it's how we feel on the inside. Sin muddies our faith. It causes us to move in a direction away from God instead of toward God. Sin will render us ineffective and unproductive in the kingdom of God. And let's be very clear, sin doesn't take away our salvation, but it darkens our soul. And that's why Jesus said, stop sinning or something worse might happen to you. You see, if we're going to be believers who embrace and champion the grace and mercy message, then we also have to open our hearts to repentance and surrender. And we have to be willing to say we're in a condition right now and it might be keeping us in a paralyzed state and we're not making any forward progress. And so we have to take a look at what's going on on the inside. And we have to allow the sanctifying grace of God to make some adjustments and change and transform us from the inside out. Okay, let's take just a few moments this morning and let's prepare for communion. One other part of this story uh, that we referenced this morning tells us that after Jesus healed the crippled man, after this man who had been an invalid for 38 years, hadn't been able to take a step or walk on his own for almost four decades, after Jesus told him to get up and walk, 
He picked up his mat. He rolled up the mat that he was laying on for the last 38 years, and he carried that mat. And when some of the religious leaders saw him carrying the mat on the Sabbath day, they said to him, it's not lawful for you to do that. You can't do that. You can't be healed on the Sabbath day. You can't carry it. Well, the man said, the lame man who was not, he's no longer lame, he said, well, this Jewish rabbi, he told me that I could carry my mat. And they said to him, well, who, the, the religious leaders, who is this guy? How, who, who would dare tell you that you could carry your mat on the Sabbath day? And do you remember the, the healed man's response? I don't know. I don't know who it was. I don't know this Jesus. It grieves me to tell you that there are many, many good Christian people today who attend church on a regular basis. They own Bibles. They love worship music. And they put themselves in a stream of God's grace in some regard in their life but they don't know who Jesus really is. They don't know him. They don't know this man, Jesus, that we want to talk about all month long as Savior and Lord. That's who he is. John the Baptist looked at him and pointed and said to his followers, that's the guy you want to follow. That's the one. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Go learn about him. Find out what he's all about. You see, there's a long list of intentions and, and, and achievements and assignments that Jesus had when he came to planet Earth. I mean, you, you look through the scripture, he did a lot of things, but he said, I came into the world to save sinners. Th this was his number one objective. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. That's not the right verse. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. A part of that confession process is a deep desire to move away from sinful behavior that we commit on a regular basis. One final verse, Hebrews 12.1. First John 1 John 1.9, let me, let me quote it the right way. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And one final verse, Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Another way to say that is to stop sinning. Stop sinning.
Can I get you to bow your heads for a moment? It just seems that the Holy Spirit has been moving in this direction over the last couple of weeks and months. So I want to give the Lord the opportunity to speak to hearts again this morning. Maybe you're here visiting for this first time. Maybe you've been coming to this church for a while. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're listening to me well after the fact. And you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You don't know him as the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. You have some religious relationship with Jesus. You have received some grace from him. You know that you have some gifting and blessing. But you've never made that full commitment to him. And you just sense that this is the time to do it. It's unique the way God works. It's, it, it's something that only he can explain. You can be hearing a gospel message for years and years and years, and then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something, and boom, you make a decision. If you know it's time for you to surrender your life to God, to become vulnerable to him, to humble yourself, and make a, co a full commitment, and know who Jesus is, really is, can I get you to just slip up your hand and say, that's me? I appreciate those hands. It's not something that you've done before, unless it's a long time ago. I really want to know him as my Lord and Savior. If that's you, could you slip your hand up? Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Four or five hands. Father, we thank you. We thank you for how you want to come into our lives and remove all of the things that keep us in the same place where we're ineffective, Lord. We're not moving forward. We're not making any progress. We thank you for the sacrifice that you made. Your word says it was on the night that you were betrayed that you took bread and after giving thanks, you broke the bread. You gave it to your disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper was ended, you took the cup. Again, you gave thanks. You passed the cup to your disciples. You said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you declare the Lord's death till he comes. Father, we receive the sacrifice that you made for us. We thank you, Lord, for your willingness to take our punishment upon your own shoulders and in exchange, give us the healing that we need, the healing to press on, to move on, to get up, to walk by faith, to stop making the same mistakes over and over again. Thank you for that grace, Lord. We receive it together in your name. Let's take the bread and the cup.